Uh, Let's bow together. Father, we do come before you and thank you for this opportunity to worship you and praise you. And I pray that all that we have done, whether it's singing, playing piano, leading, standing and singing, serving would be for you alone and for your son, for no one else. Lord, I, I thank you for the opportunity to share your word. And I pray that you'd be glorified in it. That you would enable me to speak your word with boldness and, and yet with uh, grace and mercy. That you would be glorified in what is shared. That our hearts would be pierced. And that we would respond unto you personally. Respond rightly. We thank you for this opportunity to be together. We pray you will work through it for your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you prioritize in this life? What do you prioritize each day? When you think of your priorities, what are they? Well, if you're a believer on a daily basis, our priority should be our relationship with the Lord. That should be our priority, just just absolutely that as on the top. Now, as we know, Christ should be our priority, but our priorities can subtly change because we have things to do. Uh, The Lord gives us tasks to do, whether it's working, whether it's taking care of family, going to school, whatever it might be, serving Him. We have things that we are to do within those priorities. Yet sometimes our priorities can slightly shift even to good things off of the Lord Jesus himself, off of desiring each day to walk with him and to grow in our relationship with him. If you're a true believer, and I don't know, God knows the heart, he changes our hearts so that we desire his things. And if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you will desire those things until sin gets in the way. What are your priorities? Today we're going to be beginning a study of the book of Haggai as we uh, move towards our study in James. And so be reading through this short book. It's five short messages. With that in mind, we need to uh, understand the context. So would you turn your Bibles to the book of Haggai? And you may need to go in your little thing in the front to get the spot or in the back, wherever that is, the table of contents. And while you're turning there, I want to give some context for the book of Haggai. Now, it's really important that we understand how Israel gets to this point in the book of Haggai before we get into this book. So I'm going to give a slight review of the history of the nation of Israel coming up into this point, and hopefully that will be helpful. You'll notice also on the back of your outlines there is a diagram which gives some information. It's not... uh, you know, inspired or anything, but it might be helpful for you. Well, Scripture reveals that in Genesis that God created Adam and Eve. Now, you know where I'm starting, right? (laughs) We're starting from the beginning. That he created them in his own image, and they were blessed. Yet Adam sinned, disobeying God, listening to the voice of his deceived wife. And from that point, sin entered into the human race, and man lost his blessing with God and now lives in the midst of sin and a cursed world. 
But God always had a plan to redeem and restore man. And it would be through Eve's seed, ultimately Jesus Christ, that Satan and sin would be crushed forever. In Genesis, we see that plan beginning to take shape as God calls Abraham and makes an everlasting covenant with him. Revealing the gospel that through his seed or descendant, all the nations would be blessed. And it's at this point in Genesis, as we follow his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, renamed Israel, that we see the nation is born in the sons of Israel, or Jacob. God sovereignly fulfills his word to Abraham, bringing Jacob and his sons and Joseph's brothers to Egypt. It's there they would multiply and be enslaved there and oppressed for 400 years. Now at this point, I'd like to share a brief timeline from that point to bring us up to uh, the book of Haggai. In 1445 BC, or about 400 years after about 400 years of oppression in Egypt, we had the exodus of the children of Israel, the exodus from Egypt. And then at Sinai, God made a conditional covenant with them, giving them the law. And then they were in the wilderness for 40 years because of unbelief. Unbelief. Remember Kedesh Barnea. They didn't believe. Then in 1405 B.C. on the plains of Moab, Moses restates the law in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomos, second law, just restating it. And in chapters 28 to 30, God tells the Israelites, there are blessings if you obey, cursings if you disobey. And he shares the consequences if they would disobey, what would happen? Now within that, we see that Israel did disobey. And the rallying cry of the pre-exilic prophets, those before the exile, was repent or you will be judged. Then after Moses died, Joshua was commissioned by the Lord and led the 45-year conquest of the land. It's here we see Israel did not fully obey the Lord in, drawing, in driving out the inhabitants completely. Judges reveals that that sin led to an ever-spiraling downward trend in which everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Then we see around 1095 B.C. in 1 Samuel 8 reveals that Israel's sin continues as Israel demands a king and rejects the Lord as their king. And God gave them over to their desire and gave them Saul, who was head and shoulders above the rest. This begins the kingdom period of 490 years a period in which David would follow Saul as king, and God would make an everlasting covenant with David. Second Samuel 7, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. Forever. Now David's son Solomon became king and built a splendid house for the Lord, the temple. Yet Solomon sinned and went after many women, then followed their gods, 1 Kings 11. And because of his sin, the kingdom was divided in 931 B.C., north and south, Israel and Judah. Ten northern tribes, twelve, two southern tribes, 1 Kings 11. Two kingdoms. Now even though the prophets had continued to warn of impending doom because of sin in 722 B.C., in accordance with God's discipline, the northern kingdom was taken into captivity by the Assyrians, 2 Kings chapter 17. And although the kingdom of Judah remained, they also continued in sin from king to king. And then in 622 B.C., King Josiah, after finding the word of God, we have some short-lived reforms. And then in 609 B.C., Josiah is killed 
foolishly trying to stop Pharaoh Necho, you can look at 2 Kings 23:29 and 2 Chronicles 35:20-24. But in 605 BC, Pharaoh Necho was defeated at Carchemish by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, solidifying the absolute power of the Babylonian Empire. Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 2. And at this point, Nebuchadnezzar, ultimately by the sovereign hand of God, turns to address his Jewish problem. And in 605 BC, he lays siege of Jerusalem. And he takes the first set of captives to Babylon, 2 Kings chapter 24, 1 to 7, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And among those captives in that first siege was Daniel and his three friends. And Ezekiel at that point was still in Jerusalem. Then in 597 B.C., Jerusalem is sieged again. 2 Kings 24 records that 10,000 Jews were taken captive. This is the deportation in which Ezekiel was taken. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 2. Now in 588 to 586, for 18 months, we have the third siege of Jerusalem, a gruesome ordeal. 2 Kings chapter 25, 1 and 2, and Ezekiel 24, 2. And then in 586, at the end of this siege, we see that Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple and the city walls are destroyed and we have the final exile here of the Israelites to Babylon, Ezekiel 33, 21 and 2 Kings 25. There were three deportations Bab to Babylon, 605 where Daniel left, 597 Ezekiel and 586 where Jerusalem and the walls and the temple are destroyed. Now, during the captivity of the Israelites in Babylon, you can read about that in Daniel, by the way, the Persians ultimately defeated the Babylonians in 539. It's at this point, the Persian king Cyrus took over and changed his foreign policy in regards to captive peoples. In 538, as the Lord led him, as we see, he decreed that the Jews could return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. Keep your finger in Haggai and turn to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Right before, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. It's amazing to see the sovereign hand of the Lord to bring about his will. Ezra 1, 1. Now in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation to all his king, throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, this is verse 2, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, notice what he says, Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God, he is the God who is in Jerusalem. And every survivor at every, and, and every survivor at whatever place may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then it says, Then the heads of the fathers of the household of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, and everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. 
It's important to see that the exiles that go, and we'll read about them later, God stirred up their spirits. They left a very comfortable life in Babylon. That's what they knew of. They had been there for 70 years, many of them born in Babylon, and they had left. There were some old-timers, as we'll see later on in Haggai, but many of them came at that point. A comfortable life, but God stirred up their spirit to do his work, and they obeyed and left what was comfortable to go back, to go back. And notice, go to Ezra chapter 3 for a second. We're going to see 50,000 exiled, devout Jews chose to leave. Chose to leave to go to Jerusalem where they could worship the Lord and rebuild the temple. And within a little over a year, they had laid the foundation of the temple. Ezra chapter 3 verse 8. Now in the second year of the coming, of the coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the rest of their brothers, the, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem began to work, began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Joshua with the sons and his brothers stood united with Kadmiel and his sons, the workmen in the temple of God. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang, praising, giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. That's the reason they had left Babylon. They were they had been stirred up by the Lord and they had done His work. They had begun to build and they were praising God for that. Yet if you read on in the book of Ezra, it reveals after they laid the foundation, they stopped building when they received threats from the local Samaritans and an injunction from a Persian Persian empire to stop the building. Now in face of these threats, they they seemed to be insurmountable. It's somewhat understandable they stopped temporarily. But Scripture reveals that that temporal stoppage didn't stay temporal. It continued for 16 years where these exiles didn't get back to the work at all. And that brings us to where the book of Haggai is, where we come into our study of this book. Now again, we need to understand the purpose of the book of Haggai. And on a surface level, it was to get the people to rebuild the temple, to get the people to construct it. But beyond that, we're going to see it has to do with addressing hearts of those who actually want to follow Jesus, those who want to follow the Lord but can get distracted and have priorities that are misplaced. This book isn't initially speaking to those who have no desire to follow Jesus. These are people who left their comfortable life to serve the Lord and they went through trials and hardships and there was a delay and they got sidetracked. They got sidetracked. So with that in mind, I believe today we're going to see the first of a portion of four sermons that Haggai preaches. So let's take a look and we're going to read from our passage from verses 1 to 11. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, to Joshua and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. 
Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves, yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put it in a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and I may and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because my house, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains and on the grain and on the new wine and on the oil and on the gra- uh, what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Interesting portion. Immediately we see at this book, in this book the, the immediate context that uh, Haggai God through Haggai reveals there's a specific timing of this. Notice verse 1. And by the way, Haggai is one of the most precisely dated books in the entire Bible. There are four sermons given with exact dates, and there's even a breakup within those. So look at verse 1 again. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai. Now history records, and we understand and know that Darius of king of Persia began his reign in 522 BC. And therefore it's important to realize that because these sermons are dated in relationship to that, they all took place in 520 BC. That's when this happened. And indeed the first sermon today we're looking at took place from our calendar. There's a conversion from from our calendar August 29th, 520 BC. So we know uh, when the sermon was preached. So with that in mind, how are we to identify misplaced priorities? How are we who want to follow Jesus? We're not living phony lives. We want to follow Jesus. We've given up our lives to follow him. We have decided to follow Jesus. How about those who want to follow him? How can we identify misplaced Priorities, because they do get misplaced. We do have our priorities uh, shifted at times. We can be subtly dulled into thinking some things are more important than others, and, and Jesus is subtly brought down in our lives. Well, the first thing we're going to see today is that we must first and primary listen to God's analysis of our lives. Because if we analyze our own lives, we're going to be in trouble because we think we're good. We probably think what we're doing is just fine. But it is God's word that confronts our hearts and shows us the truth. So we need to listen to his, his analysis. Again, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Jehoshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of, God, the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not come, even the time to the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. 
Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? We see the word of the Lord, verse 1, came by the prophet Haggai. This is God's word. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. And prophets in the Old Testament were God's spokesmen. They spoke his word. He inspired them. It was not any of their own thinking. They were brought forth by the Spirit of God to bring forth the word of God. So we need to remember, this is his word. And we know from Hebrews chapter 1 that God spoke in many ways, in many fashions, in many times through the prophets, to the fathers, but now he has spoken through his son. We have the completed revelation in the Bible. So notice he says that he sp- the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, and then notice who it is too. To Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, and g- governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Now, why is it coming to them? Why does he identify it comes to them? Later on, we're going to see it comes to all the people. But first, it comes to them. What's the importance of these two men here? Well, it's important to note that Zerubbabel was in the line of David. You can see that in Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogies, in Luke chapter 3. And why? And in the line of Christ, by the way. And why is that important? Because Zerubbabel was in the royal line. If there was a king at this time in Israel, Zerubbabel would have been the king. But he was a governor under the Persians, you see? But he would have been the king. So he is the governor of Judah. And then secondly, we have Jehoshadak, Joshua the son of Jehoshadak. That's not Joshua the son of Nun from, from the uh, conquest of the land. It's a different Joshua. But he is Joshua the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. He is the one, the high priest, who offers that sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. He is the high priest. He is the high priest. So these are the leaders, the leaders of Israel, the man who would be king and the high priest. God's word is coming to the leaders. And notice later on in verse 12 it says, and all, and, and all the remnant of the people. They're going to get it too. They're going to get the word also. Okay? So then, what does the Lord say? What does he say? Verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says this time, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Thus says the Lord of hosts. If you study scripture, you'll see the term Lord of hosts is used very often in the post-exilic prophets. What do I mean? Those prophets who spoke after the exile, like we were seeing here with Haggai. And one of the reasons people believe that's the case is because they were a very small amount of Jews and they were very vulnerable. And and yet God is encouraging them that he is the Lord of hosts or literally the Lord of armies. Hey, I'm the Lord of armies. I'm above all this, the Lord is saying. So you see it more often in the post-exilic prophets than in the pre-exilic prophets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. This people says... The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Oh, God's listening to what people are saying. Hmm, this people says. Well, who is this people? It's the people. It's that remnant of those who had come from Babylon with a specific purpose to serve and worship the Lord and to rebuild his temple. They left everything they had to obey the Lord, but the work has not happened for 16 years. And they are actually saying this. They're saying something. The time has not come. They're very aware of what needs to be done, by the way. 
aren't we at times? We know what God wants us to do, but we will have reasons why maybe we shouldn't do it. The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now, do you find something interesting about the term, this people says? I do. This is God's people. He doesn't say, my people say. He says, this people says. You know what that's like in a situation, a relationship. Uh, I say to my wife, look at what your son has done, right? I'm showing there's a distance between us. There's distance between them, and we'll see the distance is because they're not obedient. Their priorities are mixed up, and they're going to need to consider their ways. And so God says, this people says. Here is what they're saying. What they're saying. And by the way, God is making it clear there is a distance between this people and him, right? And this is the people, these are the devoutest of Israel. These are the most ones that want to follow him the most, by the way. These are the devout Jews that came back to, to do and serve the Lord. Now, on a side note, we need to recognize that God knows our hearts. God understands our motives. He's repeating back what they're saying. He knows exactly what they're saying. God knows everything. He doesn't miss a beat. Let me share some passages. Uh, turn to First Chronicles 28, verse 9. And this is David's exhortation to his son. David's exhortation to his son. First Chronicles 28, verse 9. As for you, my son, as for you, my son Solomon, First Chronicles 28, 9. Know that the God your know the God of your father and serve him with a whole and willing mind. That's wholeheartedly, nothing in the way. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him, but if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. The Lord knows your thinking, he knows your thoughts. He says to these Israelites, This people says it's not time yet, right? Psalm 94.11, I'll read this to you. The Lord knows the thoughts of men. The Lord knows. He knows what you are thinking right now because he made you, because he's God. He will bring every act to judgment, whether hidden, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes 12. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? Why do you assert that God doesn't see what you are doing? He sees. Jeremiah 16, 17. For my eyes are on their ways. Their ways. That's the way they walk, the way they live. That's the way, as we'll see in a moment, their life is ordained or, 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 or brought forth. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Now, on a side note, God is very gracious. Sixteen years has gone by, and he's starting to remind them directly that they are, as we'll see, under his discipline. He's very patient. Sixteen years has gone by. And he finally directly addresses it. So with that in mind, God knows their thoughts and deeds. This people says, back in our passage, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be built. As I mentioned earlier, 
16 years earlier, 50,000 devout Jews chose to leave and return so they could worship the Lord and rebuild the temple. And they began to, but they stopped because there were, uh, there were, there were obstacles in the way, an injunction from the empire, uh, Samaritans that were blocking things. But those things went away. And 16 years has gone by. 16 years, what is it? It's 2018, right? Hmm, that's like 2002, isn't it? That's a long time ago. That's as long as this church has been around. That's a long time. 16 years. So what, so what happens here? What does God say? Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, The time has not come even for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. And then we have the word of the Lord coming again, verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Again, we have the word of the Lord. It's God's word. And he's saying, basically, listen up. So Cyrus released them in 538 to work on the foundation. They stopped the work, and 16 years has gone by, and now God calls them on their priorities. On their priorities. Is it time for you yourselves, now he's talking directly to him, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now what's the significance of the term paneled houses? For us, paneling is out, isn't it? No one much panels these days, right? The reality is, back at this time, paneled houses spoke of something of wealth. Something of wealth because they didn't have many trees in the nation of Israel. They would have to import them from Lebanon. And so it was something that was very nice. It was very nice. Now, does God have a problem with his people living in nice houses? Yes and no, right? No, if your priorities are right and he's in the top and that's what he's allowed and been generous with. Yes, if he has a major problem with it, if your priorities and your own needs are above him. If he is not the top of your heart, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Then it is wrong. Everything's wrong. Everything's wrong, no matter what it is. And this was the case here. This was the case here. Their priorities were not in order. They were focused on their own houses rather than God's house. The reason why they left everything Now, why did you leave everything when you came to Christ? When you came to Christ, if you truly did, you left everything to follow Jesus Christ. In your heart, maybe you didn't release it physically, sometimes that happens, but in your heart of hearts, you let it go. Lord Jesus, I'm yours. And we rejoice in the forgiveness of sins that we have when we trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. And we are freed and there is joy and peace in the Lord even without anything, those things that used to encumber us and cause despair, by the way. You left those things willingly, but now we tend to gather them up in our hearts and put a lot of weight to them again. A lot of weight. And his house, which is us, as we'll see, the church is maybe left desolate. Maybe it's not being built up. Maybe it's not, God is not, the work that he wants to do is not happening because You're doing something else. They had given an excuse. It is not time yet. The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. These are people following the Lord, by the way, externally. They are the ones that are the most out of Israel. 
And they are, in this context, most likely claiming it's not God's time yet. We don't believe God wants us to do it yet. Isn't that what we do at times? We know the right thing. We go, well, it's not God's time yet. Well, they're saying it's not God's time yet. He says it's not time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. And speaking of the temple, you see, the temple was destroyed uh, when Babylon came in and took over in 586. It was destroyed completely. And the foundation has been rebuilt. And they're just here now focused on their own stuff. Now, speaking of the temple, it's important to understand what it really represents. What the temple represented in the Old Testament and what it represents in a sense now as we look back on this passage. In the Old Testament, we know that even though God does not dwell in temples made with human hands, the purpose of the tabernacle and the temple was to give a visible picture of heavenly realities so that God would identify with his people. He even brought his glory into the temple to show his presence with them. The temple was a picture of how one accesses God, that sin must be dealt with before one can access God. There were sacrifices that were brought forth that pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And then we, by virtue of His sacrifice, enter into a relationship with Him. That picture of being able to go in the Holy of Holies in His presence because our sins are forgiven. And if you've never had your sins forgiven, if you're willing to acknowledge you're a sinner and realize that Jesus took on, God took on human flesh, he died for your sins and rose from the dead, that he paid the full penalty. If you're willing to call out to Jesus, save me from my sins, he will save you. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So in the Old Testament, the temple was a manifestation. It was an earthly copy or shadow of heavenly realities. Hebrews chapter 8 and 9. And within this physical temple, as I mentioned, there were those sacrifices offered and those things done to picture the process of how one, by shadow, has to approach God, ultimately through Jesus Christ. Now today, we realize in this new age, the church age, that there was a mystery, the church, and that the church is, as we see, the temple of the living God. We are right now his dwelling place. He put his spirit in us. Let me read some passages. Well, I'll read this for you. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are the temple of, the, of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? Believers are the temple of the living God. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we studied this a, a couple months ago. Or maybe a year ago, some time ago. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 4, and this is speaking of those who have been born again to a living hope, who are yearning for the pure milk of the word, who have tasted his kindness through salvation, right? Verse Peter chapter 2, excuse me, verse 4. And coming to him, that's Jesus, and there's a metaphor, it's a metaphor, it's a building metaphor, as we're going to see. As to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, that's believers, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, to Jesus Christ. We are being built up as believers, made more like Christ, so that we would offer sacrifices that are acceptable to him. We would offer our lives, that he would dwell in us and we would submit to him and walk with him. 
He is building us up. And how is he doing that? The context of 1 Peter is through the word of God, he is building us up individually and corporately. And the question is, what is the condition of his house? Has his house been left desolate while your house is being built up? And I mean your physical stuff. It's an illustration here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we see, he says, verse 19, Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Therefore you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body. So what's the point? You and I right now are the physical, visible temple of God until we go to heaven, right? We are the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we should be glorifying God. We should be about His work and his business we are being built up one upon another as a holy temple to offer spiritual sacrifices christ is in us and we see in many passages first corinthians 3 you could read that one ephesians chapter 2 we are being built up upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets so then could god be saying to us what is the spiritual condition of my house What is the condition of where I am dwelling now? I am dwelling in the church. Not the buildings, but in the people. What's the condition? What's the condition? How is my work going on in you? Are you becoming more like Christ? Are you being built up or is the foundation just sitting there in a shabby, desolate condition? How is it going on in the church? How is it going on? How is his work going on in us? Is it the priority of our lives every day for Christ to build us up and make us more like him? Is that our priority? To walk with him, is that our priority as we come together? Or are we making excuses? It's not time yet. I, I, I don't have time for that right now, but I'll definitely get to that. I recognize I should be growing in my understanding and obedience to the word, yet I've really got a lot of stuff to do. I'll get up to that later. Yes, I should be in being a Bible study devoted to his word, not just coming to sit around, but coming to grow. I should do that. Should be devoted to fellowship in his in his in his body. But I've got too many family obligations and you know, my physical condition is getting worse and you know, my work requires so much energy. Uh, I, I just can't make it right now. Not yet. I should be giving to the Lord's work, but I can't right now. I've got so many obligations and you know my financial situation. It's not time yet. I'm flattered you think I'm talented in this or that and that my spiritual gifts might be helpful in a need that you have in the church, but I'm really waiting for God to lead me exactly how he wants me to do it. It's not time yet. Not time yet. One pastor writes, but to the one who wants to do what is right, the time is always present and available. If you want to do what's right, the time is there. You see, what we do in our time really reveals where our priorities are, by the way. When you make time for the Lord in your heart of hearts throughout the day, that's where your priority is. When you make time for the body of Christ, not in some ritualistic way, but really truly wanting to be around, desiring to be around, I hope you came this morning desiring to praise God. What a wonderful thing that he be glorified. So then, how do we identify misplaced priorities? We have to, first of all, listen to what God says about us about us and the way to do that we have to be in the word of god 
We've got to be in the Word of God. See, God's Word is inspired. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. Scripture reproves us. It, it reproves us. It corrects us and it teaches and trains us. So have you heard, thus says the Lord about your priorities? God's word will convict you. So with that in mind, how can we identify it? First of all, we need to listen. What is God saying? We need to be in the word of God and really truly desiring God to change our hearts. Lord, I want to be like you. Help me see my errors. Help me see where I'm wrong. Help me prioritize you, Lord God. And secondly, we need to examine our way, our footsteps, our life. Look at verse 5, back in Haggai, chapter 1. Now, therefore, I've identified you got misplaced priorities, right? Now, therefore, in light of that, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now he's going to say something. He's going to say, I want you to consider your ways, but within that, I want you to consider what's going on. There are some things happening in your life which should make you consider your ways. We're going to see that God is allowing discipline and hardship so that they might consider their priorities. Because the real issue is they're not about his work. That's what we're going to say. Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. These are kind of weird statements because saying you got it, but you don't have it, right? And he who earns earn wages to put it in a purse with holes. It's just slipping right out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. The term is emphatic. The second thing we need to do is literally, it says, set your heart, that your mind, on your ways. Well, what are ways? What are our ways? The Hebrew word direct, it speaks of a road or a course or a path. It is your life. It's the course of your actions day to day. What do you do all the time? Where is your heart in that? Where is your heart? Are you about him? And him changing you and becoming more like Christ in your ways? Or are you just about your own stuff? Let me share some Proverbs that are helpful in this. Turn to Proverbs chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I want to remind us that it's through God's word that we see and understand what our ways really are. Because all of the man's ways seem right in his eyes. If you consider your ways based on your own understanding, hmm, I'm like, yeah, I'm good, I'm good, <laughs> right? But when you go to the Word of God, it helps us see it rightly. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. The ways is everything you do in life. Acknowledge Him and He will what? Make your path or literally your ways. It's the same word, your ways straight. Proverbs 4.26, watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Watch the path of your feet. Watch what you do each day. And God watches our ways. Proverbs 5.21, for the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord. He watches all his paths. God is watching the ways you are. And he said to Israel there, consider your ways. 
You're about your stuff and you're not about mine, even though you claim to follow me. You're really about your stuff. Your sin's not time yet. Proverbs 10.9, he who walks with integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will be found out. Well, what is it that directs our ways? We know thy word is a light unto my path and a lamp unto my what feet, right? We see in uh, Proverbs 6.23, the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. We need to be reproved. We are so sinful. I am so sinful. My heart and attitude can go wrong so quickly, and I need God's word to convict me, to reprove me. Greg, that's wrong, to expose it, that I would confess it. Lord, I'm sorry that was wrong. And I, and I desire to be built up and changed and have his word uh, inundating my thoughts, immersing my heart with it. Proverbs 8:32. Now, therefore, O sons... Listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me. That's where we find his ways in the word. Proverbs 14.8, the wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way. Have a right view of your behavior. Have a right view of the way you are walking day in and day out. The highway of the upright, Proverbs 16, 17, is to depart from evil. I think of that flight 10, departing from evil right away, right? Turn away. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. And we see here, tremendous, he who watches his way preserves his life. Watch your way. Watch the path of your feet, which is driven by your heart and where your mind is at, where your thinking is at. Watch what you're thinking about. He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul, but he who is careless in his ways will die. Proverbs 19:16. Listen, my son, and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Proverbs 23, verse 19. Proverbs 23, 26. Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways now there are a ton of verses on people who think they're going the right way but they're not and i'll just share one or two and they're repeated in proverbs by the way there is a way which seems right to a man but the end is death when we evaluated ourselves we're going to fail we need to have god's word we need to be going about his ways every man's way is right in his own eyes but the lord weighs the hearts guess what the israelites thought it's not time yet it's right in our eyes not to do this yet. And God says, is it really right that my house lays in shambles and uh, your houses are really beautiful? You're running to your own houses. So back to our passage. As you're turning there, one last proverb is I'll read. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse, but he who guards himself will be far from them. Proverbs 22.5. So then back in our passage, we have the command, and it's intensive actually in Hebrew. Consider your way. Set your heart intently on yourself, not for self-elevation, but for self-evaluation in light of God's word. Consider your ways in light of God's word. Consider how you interact, what you're doing, what your priorities in life. Is Jesus the priority in your life? One pastor writes, the challenge to them is expressed in the strongest terms in the Hebrew language. Therefore, carefully, think carefully about your ways. 
literally set your heart upon your ways, calling for the utmost degree of reflection and attention. There's a total lack of negligence and lack of understanding between God's house and what you're doing. You're not seeing it. You're not getting it. Set your heart on your ways. Set your heart on your ways. And notice God is going to help them. God's going to help them. He's going to say, guess what? If you look at your ways closely, you'll see also that not only are you about my business, but you're being disciplined. You're being disciplined. Look back at our passage. Again, verse 8 or 6. You have sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there's nothing, to, not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. He who earns wages puts, earns wages to put in a purse with holes. You think they're absolutely poor by that statement. But wait a second, paneling is very expensive. And they each run to their own houses, as we'll see later on. I think the point is here that God is disciplining him and he is causing things to slip through. And, and he's actually, as we'll see, he, later on we'll see that he put the word out that they would not get food, that they would not get rain. He is causing them to not receive what they ultimately need, that they would wake up. But here, this speaks of a dissatisfaction. Folks, we in America, we have so much and we are always dissatisfied. We have so much stuff. We have so much stuff. But we, we go to bed dissatisfied, like we have nothing. We have so much. One pastor writes, So they lived in a perpetual frustration of discontentment, nothing satisfied. We can't pass over this lesson easily. It's for us. If you devote yourself to sowing and eating and drinking and clothing and earning wages, neglect the ministry of the body of Christ, his temple, you will live in constant frustration if you spend your time and energy seeking comfort, security from the world and do not spend it in the, for the glory of God, you will always end up in guilt and frustration. If you're a true believer, guess what? It doesn't work to go your own way. God will frustrate that. Praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord. So here we see those things. We see those things. We are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Matthew chapter 6. So what do we do if God reveals it? Hey, something's going on in my life. Thus says the Lord of hosts, again, verse 7, consider your ways. Twice, consider your ways. Look at the results of what's happening in your life and think about the direction of your life. Think about the direction of your life. God desires them to realize that dissatisfaction is a symptom of a greater problem, that God is allowing things to slip through their hands. It is a symptom that their priorities are backwards, that they should be about his business and not their own business. That's really all he's trying to say. How about you? Are you dissatisfied with life? We all experience this on small levels when our hearts get drawn away from what God would have us do every day. Consider your ways. The Lord graciously allows his children to be dissatisfied and, as we'll see, disciplines them. Well, what is it God wants them to do? God is faithful. He does not leave us in the dark concerning what he wants us to do and certainly them too. Look at verse 8. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased and glorified with it, says the Lord. Hey, this is what I want you to do. It's that clear. Be about the reason why I brought you out of Babylon. Be about the reason why he saved you. We're not here just to live this life and to move through day by day. We're not here to do that. We're here to follow Jesus Christ. Follow Jesus Christ. 
And if you're not about his business, you're going to be dissatisfied if you're a true believer. And God's going to discipline you. Be about his business. Where he is making you like him every day. You're in his word. You're aligned to convict you. You want to be like him. You want to do what he wants you to do. You're around those also who want to do the same thing. You're committed to Christ. Why did he bring you out of the depths of sin? That you would be made like Christ. Be about that business. Be about the building of his temple personally and corporately. So that God will be glorified. God is glorified when Christ is magnified in us. God is glorified when we are being made like Jesus. Turn to Luke chapter 12. We see a few exhortations for, for, uh, for all of us. Luke chapter 12. You see, yes, God knows we need food and drink and housing and all that stuff. Nothing wrong with that. It's where our hearts are at. It's where our hearts are at. Is that everything? Is that what we're focused on? Is that our priority? Or not. Luke chapter 12, verse 29. And do not seek what you shall eat and what you shall drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations in the world eagerly seek. All the things those who don't know Jesus eagerly seek. That's what they live for. They live for the basics of life, right? Seek. Eagerly seek. But your Father knows you need these things. But seek for his kingdom, and these things shall be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for the Father has gladly chosen to give you the kingdom. Hey, be about his kingdom then, right? Be about Jesus. Sell your possessions, give to charity, make purses which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. What's your treasure? Is it the stuff of this world? He says here, be, you look at verse, verse 35, be dressed in readiness keep, and keep your lamps alight, alit. Look at verse 36. And be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they are immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom master shall find on the alert when he comes. And you look at verse 43. Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes, being about his ways and his work. You were saved for him, not for you. So back to our passage. <clears throat> what should be our priority if we are Christians? His kingdom, the building up of his house, individually and corporately, and as God draws people who don't know him into his, into his house, into salvation, it should be about his business, about him, that priority. Have you come to Jesus Christ? You were saved out of this world. It doesn't mean we don't have a house. doesn't mean we don't have whatever. It means that's just not on our mind. That's not our focus. God provides those things. What's on my focus is... Lord, I want to follow you today. I want to do the right thing. I want you to help me. Use your word to direct my path. Help me to be a godly man. Help me to interact rightly today when I speak to people. Help me to share your word with boldness and confidence, not in myself, but in you. Help me to be godly. Help me to see when I fail, Lord God. Help me. I trust that you will. Notice back in our passage in Haggai, it's so that he will be pleased and glorified. And then notice he, he goes back to share why they should consider their ways. Verse 9, you look for much, 
And behold, it comes to little when you bring it home. I blow it away. God says, I'm the one messing with your life. Believer, if you've got trouble, God allows trouble to, 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 to we see in Scripture, to obviously test our faith, to, to prove it's genuine. But he also allows trouble when we're not about his business, by the way. If you are not wholeheartedly submitted to Christ, doesn't mean we don't fail and mess up. I'm not talking about that. But submitted to Christ when we fail, confessing sin, moving back and following him, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have trouble. Consider your ways. Think carefully upon your lives. Is this going on? Is this going on? If not, if it is, if you're not about his business. Verse 9, you look for much, behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house, which lies desolate while each one runs to his own house, let me ask you, is your house, the temple of the Holy Spirit, are you spiritually desolate in your walk with Christ? Is it just the same it was a few years ago? Are you the same in Christ you were? Or are you growing? Are you becoming more like Jesus? Are you walking with him? Are you about his business? His business. Therefore, verse 10, because of you, or no, excuse me, because my house lies desolate where each, while each of you runs to his own house. It's like, when you think of running, it's like, that's my priority. I'm getting there, right? Therefore, because of you, it's not God's fault, it's your fault. Because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I call for a drought in the land and on the mountains, on the grain and new wine and on the oil and on the ground, the, uh, what the ground produces, on men and cattle, all the labor of your hands. Therefore, because of you, I've basically cause things to be difficult in your life i'm bringing a drought on your life that you might see things that you might consider your ways these are the devout ones by the way the ones that want to follow the lord by the way by the way and you'll see that god works very graciously and mercifully with them as he is right here consider your ways consider your ways do you see things as vain and empty do you know him if you do maybe you're being disciplined you know when, when we're disciplined, we need to respond rightly to reproof. There's a lot of Proverbs about reproof, but uh, we're running out of time. But uh, we see that we are not to reject the discipline of the Lord, nor loathe this reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. You know, a good father doesn't let their child do things that are ultimately destructive for them. He instructs and disciplines so that they would change their behavior and their hearts. And guess what? Most of the time, when things are really off, it takes some pain to help us think rightly and change our behavior. And maybe some of you are going through some pain right now. Maybe God is saying, hey, I love you so much. Consider your ways. You're not about me. You're about you. You're about you and not about me. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Does your life exhibit any of these symptoms of misplaced priorities? Does your life exhibit any of this? God takes full credit. I blew it away. I did it all. And if you're a true believer and you are going through hardship, ultimately because you're not about his business, God takes full credit. I called for this in your life, that this would be frustrating you, that this would be frustrating you, that this would be this. That you would set your heart upon your paths. And yes, we can have two people with the same, you know, path of behavior or like things they do, but where's your heart? Where's your heart? 
Are you about God's business? Are you about having him build you up? Are you about the body of Christ being built up? Are you about his business and saving others that they may be built up before Christ come so that he will be glorified? I've decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, I still will follow. It's a lonely place. If you're a Christian, you probably don't have a lot of friends except for a few Christians. It's a lonely place. I decided to follow Jesus. For those of you who have already decided, is God saying, consider your ways? Consider your ways. He is to me. I hope he is to all of us. We would consider it, and we would be about his business. And, and I also share to those who don't know him, if you don't know Jesus Christ, your ways are futile. They're empty. They're not satisfying. There's no joy, ultimately. There may be happiness here and there based on circumstance. But it is only through Christ when sin is cleansed from you. You're dirty with sin. And Jesus came and he died, paid the full penalty God requires, which is death. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He died and he rose from the dead. If you trust in Jesus, God, the Son, who died for you, he will cleanse you of all your sin and you will be forgiven. Forgiven to serve him in joy and peace and and not frustration like this. And if it happens, he'll share with, as he does with us, with you, consider your ways. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this passage and this reminder for us to set our hearts intently on our ways. Lord, I pray that each believer here who has truly come to you, who has given up their lives, given up their lives to follow you, real believers, not phony believers, who have truly given up their lives, that as our priorities uh, slip and become misguided, Lord God, I pray that we would consider our ways, that we would respond and see what you're doing in our lives if you're disciplining, and that we would respond and turn wholeheartedly to obey you, Lord God, to do what you've called us to do. It's very clear in your word. I pray that you would just help us to turn and do what you've called us. And Lord, for those who aren't saved I pray that they would be saved, that they would turn to Jesus and be saved, Lord God. So, Father, we pray that you would have your way with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.